Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bard Flies, your irreverent and occasionally erudite guide to the plays of William Shakespeare. In today's episode, the king is dead, long live the king, or at least let's hope he survives for a couple of plays. Grab your popcorn and settle in for Henry VI Part 1, a drama featuring a new sovereign fighting a protracted foreign war, a divided and decadent nobility, petty clashes between military leaders and their civilian overseers, and a decidedly unholy portrayal of St. Joan of Arc. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is Bardflies, Episode 3, Joan of Snark. What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. I got better. James, this play builds on a lot of history that Shakespeare's audience would have been familiar with, but that most of us don't know much about today. Uh, Can you give us some historical context before you attempt to explain the plot? I can honestly imagine nothing that I would enjoy more, Will. Um, (laughs) So this play was written in or around 1591, uh, but it's concerned with historical events that happened between the 1420s and 1430s. So even to Shakespeare's audience, that's like more than a century and a half previous. Uh, And of course, for us, reading another 500 years later, it's even more remote. So I thought it would be useful for our listeners to have just a basic understanding of the historical background of who these people are and what they're fighting about. I think in the context of this play, that covers two broad topics. First of all, there's England's military situation in France at the time of the death of Henry V, because, you know, the conflict of the play is depicting with Joan of Arc etc., is just the tail end of the much longer conflict of the Hundred Years' War. And second, while it was of the essence of medieval court politics to be needlessly petty and factional, they didn't usually spill over into civil war, as we'll see is going to happen in this cycle of plays. Honestly, having uh, worked in Capitol Hill, I don't think it's all that much different today. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, sure, I think you're right. Petty and vituperative politics has been a characteristic of uh, human society since the very (laughs) beginning. But counterpoint, imagine if everyone from Kamala Harris to Bernie Sanders to, I don't know, Mark Meadows had a private army, vast economic resources, and they're all related, right? That's (laughs) sort of what we're dealing with here. Um, In the context of this play and its sequels, Suffice to say that there's some historical reasons for these nobles to be particularly vituperative and belligerent that also have to do with why Henry VI is king in the first place. Okay, so that makes sense. Uh, And I have to say, this may be the rare situation where our shared fascination with medieval dynastic politics is a benefit for anyone else other than ourselves. Uh, I would also say... To Shakespeare's audience, 160 years back, that's like the difference between us and like 1860 today or 1859 or whatever it is. So that's pretty pretty far distance back. Yeah, and you got to assume that in the same way that we kind of have these hazy memories or this hazy historical memory of pre-Civil War America as like, you know, we're aware of some of the big ideas and the big events and kind of the mythology of it, we probably don't know much about the nitty-gritty, right? And so I would assume it would be somewhat similar for Shakespeare's audience. Yeah, uh, so, you know, you you might know who Lincoln is, you might know who Henry V is, but you probably don't necessarily know all that much about James Buchanan, or Franklin Pierce, you know? Or Humphrey, um, Duke of Gloucester. Or Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. So that, so yeah. that makes sense. For right now, why don't you start with the situation in France? 
like many a medieval war, this conflict began because of a disputed succession. In this case, regarding who should become the king of France when Charles IV died in 1328. Charles IV was the third son of Philip the Fair, all three of Philip the Fair's sons became kings of France. None of them had male children. So when Charles IV died, the closest claimant by blood was Edward III of England, who was the son of Charles IV's younger sister, Isabella, possibly known to our audience as a character in the film Braveheart, and her husband, King Edward II of England. However, in 1328, Edward was only 16 years old. He had never been in France and at the time, he was essentially a puppet king while real power was being wielded by his mother, Isabella, and her lover, who was a man named Roger Mortimer. So the French nobility did some good old-fashioned hand-waving and basically gave the crown to a man named Philip de Valois, who was at least actually French. Uh, this was all justified with the convenient discovery in gigantic scare quotes that French legal tradition forbade passing the crown through a female line, which, Will, you're probably familiar with as the term Salic law. Fast forward a couple years, Edward basically throws out his mother and her lover from power and had begun to rule in his own right and started looking around and wondering why he wasn't the king of France as well as the king of England. Uh, and so following a few deliberate provocations lobbed back and forth between him and the king of France, he decided that it was time to brenter, if you will. Uh, so I kind of prefer enter or maybe for the francophone listeners, Ingleterre here, but I, I, you know. I think I actually like Ingleterre the most. To be fair, the the British today wanted to get away from being controlled by France. While in 1328, they had the kind of crazy idea that they were going to take over France, and that's what Edward tried to do. He assembled an army and he invaded France, and after that, the the two countries were stuck in history's longest abusive relationship for the next century and change. Got it. Okay, so. Uh... Where is everybody right now in this drama at the time the play covers? So at the beginning of this play, it's 1422, and Henry V has just died right as he had led the English to the brink of victory. Uh, we will be talking a lot more about this in future episodes. Henry left behind a nine-month-old son as his heir, who was the Henry VI of this play. At that point, well, we're about to talk about it. So that's everything that's kind of happening between England and France. But I would imagine that there's a lot of internal strife and division in England at the same time. And I, and I know that it drives a lot of the conflict and drama in the play. So what's all that about? Basically, Henry VI is king because his grandfather, Henry IV, led an uprising of the nobility against King Richard II for reasons that we will be exploring in much more detail when we get to the play called Richard II. While at that time, that being, I mean, at the time of the revolt against Richard, Henry IV was the obvious choice in a political sense to replace Richard as king. In doing so, he essentially moved ahead in the line of succession in front of a few others who could be argued to have a more senior claim. Again, uh, you know, again, like with Edward III, what we were talking about earlier, mostly to do with the question of whether or not a claim could derive from the female line. Now, actually, the time of Henry IV's reign and through the reign of Henry V, the most senior potential claimant was a man named Edmund Mortimer, Earl of March, um, and he was a very strong supporter of Henry V in particular. But, of course, since Henry VI was a child and a weak king, Edmund's heirs were asking themselves about England the same questions that Edward III had been asking himself about France, which is 
why aren't we in charge when our descent theoretically comes from a senior line? All right. So that was an awesome crash course in the late medieval dynastic politics in England and France. What about sort of the plot of this particular play, uh, just to set up our broader discussion of the themes in it? Well, I'll do the best I can, Will. The play opens with the funeral of Henry V, at which a number of prominent nobles fret about the fact that he's passing his crown on to a minor heir in Henry VI. For most of the play after this opening scene, the plot is taken up with parallel sets of conflicts, one in England and one in France. In France, we have a seesaw military campaign between John Talbot, the leader of the English forces, and Joan La Pucelle, better known to us as Joan of Arc, who has won the trust of the Dauphin of France and is the leader of the French forces. One side wins some territory or wins a town, and then the other side wins it back. And neither side is really gaining the upper hand. Joan claims that her success, such as it is, is the result of holy visions that have been granted to her by God. Uh, The English, by contrast, believe that she's being aided by demons. Then, in England, we follow the development of a poisonous set of rivalries amongst the nobles of the court. Humphrey, the Duke of Gloucester, the brother of the now-dead Henry V, gets into a pretty epic and vituperative dispute with Henry Beaufort, the Bishop of Winchester. That'll be important in the next play. It's not really a huge element in this play, uh, but it will come back in Henry VI Part Two. More consequential is a legal debate between the Duke of Somerset and a man named Richard Plantagenet. So this is probably the most famous scene of the play, which finds these two guys, you know, having an intense disagreement about a point of law in the gardens of the Inns of Court. Like many pairs of students disagreeing about ideas, and Will, I think you and I can probably relate to this pretty well, their high-minded theoretical debate descends into petty name-calling and backbiting. And Will, this, this scene made me wonder, what do you think was the silliest or most memorable debate that we had like this during our college years? So there are a lot of debates that could fall into this category. I mean, obviously, the great ongoing one is uh, whether Charles I had it coming uh, or not. But I think that probably the most uh, edifying for the people listening is, um, which is the greatest adventure film of the early 1990s? 1993's The Three Musketeers? Or 1991's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Well, Will, I, I really have only one response to this question, and that is, all for one and more for me. To which I would respond, gonna cut your heart out with a spoon. Why a spoon, cousin? Because it's dull, you twit. It'll hurt more. Uh, anyway, back to the Inns of Court and the debate between Richard and Somerset. Uh, and by the way, Shakespeare doesn't actually tell us what they started out arguing about. He just cuts straight to the petty insults. Uh, Somerset insults Richard's father. Uh, and then both of the two men try to get the other people present to declare their support for one or the other of them by plucking either a red rose if they support Somerset or a white rose if they support Richard. You know, these roses, the colors of these roses will come to represent the two sides in the coming battles between the houses of York and Lancaster. Hence, this is where... The War of the Roses, as a name, comes from. Right, exactly. And we're not in the Wars of the Roses yet, to be clear. But yes, when the Wars of the Roses begin, they will be referred to that because it is the conflict of the White Rose of York and the Red Rose of Lancaster. Anyway, Richard then goes to see his uncle Edmund, who's a prisoner in the Tower of London, and Edmund narrates to him why Richard is the rightful heir to the throne. Richard petitions Henry VI to be reinstated to the lands and titles that his father had possessed before his father was attainted for treason, and Henry VI agrees and makes Richard the Duke of York. 
Now, these two through lines of the conflict in France and the sort of escalating arguments amongst the nobility converge when basically the entire English court departs for France. A key English ally, the Duke of Burgundy, switches sides and goes over to the French. Henry sends Talbot to win him back over to the English. Henry also tries to reconcile Somerset and Richard of York and draws a red rose, really showing off his great people skills uh, and inadvertently alienates York even more. He also tries to split the difference between them by giving them co-equal military commands, putting Somerset in charge of the cavalry and Richard in charge of the infantry before he returns to England and leaving the rest of them in France. So just as somebody familiar a little bit with military affairs, that is a terrible, terrible idea. You don't you don't divide sort of those commands between people with independent political bases and expect them to do well. Well, well, it it shouldn't it shouldn't surprise you that it doesn't turn out well. <laughs> um, Talbot's negotiations with Burgundy break down, and his army is surrounded. He sends for help, and as you predicted, Henry's divided command results in exactly the terrible outcome that you would expect, as both Somerset and York sit around waiting to see what the other one will do. Talbot's army is defeated. Talbot and his son are killed. Somerset and York point the finger at each other. After the defeat of Talbot, Joan is captured and tried by Richard. In the weirdest scene in the play, Joan's military insights are shown to have come from the assistance of three actual demons who desert her. Uh, Joan is burned at the stake, as apparently she deserves in Shakespeare's view. We have found the witch. May we burn her? Huh? Charles and Henry agree to a truce, basically for each to lick their wounds and eye the next round of conflict. And at the urging of Duke Humphrey, Henry also agrees to marry the daughter of the Earl of Armagnac, who is a powerful noble whose alliance can help England keep French power in check. So I just, going back to the demons here for a second, you know, if you go through all this, the politics, the sort of military vicissitudes, sure. And I get that people believed in demons back there in in a much more immediate and, like, real way than today. However, if it was revealed that, you know, your opponent was allied with a bunch of demons, I feel like that would be, like, the most important thing that happens in this play. And it's just kind of tossed away as a throwaway. Um, So I'm just going to sit with that. uh, And please tell me that we're almost (laughs) done with the plot summary on this one. (laughs) Not quite, unfortunately, Will, because we still have to set up the next play. The Earl of Suffolk, a man we have not yet mentioned in this plot summary, um, has his own ideas about whom the King of England should marry. In the course of campaigning in France with the English army, he has met Margaret, the daughter of the Duke of Anjou, and he determines that he's going to try to get Henry to marry her, more or less on the basis that she's hot, uh, because he thinks that he's going to be able to control Henry through Margaret. Now, Duke Humphrey advises against the match, both because Henry as we noted previously, is already promised to someone else. And also, and more importantly, because the match with Margaret really doesn't bring any political benefits. But Henry overrules him and breaks the previous engagement in favor of Margaret. The play ends with a troubled peace and the knowledge that more conflict lies just ahead. If you've watched if you've watched Game of Thrones, this plot is not that shocking to you. You just need to sort of transpose some some of the characters, and we'll get into all of that later. But it's it sounds more complicated than it may actually be in practice. All right, Will, do you want to... Uh, I know you've got some questions. Do you want to lead us off, however, with your favorite passage in the play? Yes, so I will do the opening three passages, and this features uh, Bedford, Gloucester, and Exeter, who are three 
powerful nobles who have sort of been in caretaker roles during King Henry V's illness, and Henry V has just died. So Bedford starts off uh, announcing the death of the king. Hung be the heavens with black, yield day to night. Comets, importing change of times and states, brandish your crystal tresses in the sky, and with them scourge the bad revolting stars that have consented unto Henry's death. King Henry V, too famous to live long, England ne'er lost a king of so much worth. This is Gloucester. England ne'er had a king until his time. Virtue he had, deserving to command. His brandished sword did blind men with his beams. His arms spread wider than a dragon's wings. His sparking eyes replete with wrathful fire, more dazzled and drove back his enemies than midday sun fierce bent against their faces. What should I say? His deeds exceed all speech. He ne'er lift up his hand but conquered. And then Exeter. We mourn in black. Why mourn me not in blood? Henry is dead and never shall revive. Upon a wooden coffin we attend, and death's dishonorable victory we with our stately presence glorify, like captives bound to a triumphant car. What? Shall we curse the planets of mishap that plotted thus our glory's overthrow? Or shall we think the subtle-witted French conjurers and sorcerers that, afraid of him by magic verses, have contrived his end? What drew you to this passage in particular? So, beautifully... Beautifully written and overwrought, but overwrought at the death of a great king, the type of king who was able to unify the nation in a way that, you know, his father could not quite do. Uh, Henry IV faced civil wars all the time prior to his death and Henry V's ascent. And it sort of captures, I think, the panic of losing a great leader somewhat before his time when much is uncertain. Uh, I just love the the sort of descriptions of Henry's martial feats and also the, the sense of real overarching calamity that is present in this play at the very beginning. It's not like like things go from like okay to really bad it's like they start it really bad and they get worse throughout the play despite some yeah. occasional triumphs as you mentioned these are the first three passages or the first three pieces of dialogue in the play at all and i think they in addition to everything you said they also sort of set the tone for something that at least i thought was a major element throughout the play which was sort of the way that henry v who's a character that we never see on stage in this play nonetheless overhangs all the proceedings and is almost a more influential character in a way than many of the people that we actually see on screen for mm. how he impacts the way people talk, what people talk about, and the sort of implicit and frankly explicit contrast between him and at least the the people on the English side. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I'll just go into my first question, which speaks directly to this point. Uh, so is the problem that England faces now that Henry V is dead, is it just about poor leadership and the successive sort of generation? Or is it about a political system that's kind of inherently unstable? Uh, because you have immediately, as you described in your plot summary, all of these nobles with different beefs, basically, with one another, uh, and there's nobody really in charge at the top of this structure. So it's it's sort of an interesting question about monarchy. It's sort of a question about how much people matter versus kind of the structures that they're embedded in. Uh, and I was wondering how you thought about that particularly. I really have, I think, two immediate reactions to that. To me, this play is talking about, you know, what is basically the ultimate terror of all 
monarchical systems, which is a royal minority, right? In, in, in theory, you know, in a monarchy, it should be, you should be going from, the, you know, the death of the king to passing the throne to his adult son, or at least in the medieval context, I should say. And that's the theory is that that's how you ensure stable, you know, stable, stable governance, and you ensure that royal power is strong enough and that there is a clear figure at the top of the food chain you see you know throughout definitely throughout english history i don't know as much about other nations but you know minorities in you know royal minorities in english history have definitely tended to be some of the more unstable and disastrous times with frankly with henry the sixth being a prime example and you know and that's not just because the king is unable to you know is unable to express his power and keep other people under control it's also that they're you know that that king doesn't have an unself-interested mentor not i mean not that of course you know if henry v was alive he wouldn't be self-interested as well but the interest of of the royal father to their royal son is to teach them to be an effective king whereas the interests of um, who are some of our who are some of our of Exeter and Suffolk and and the Bishop of Winchester are purely are, are much more about advancing their own causes and trying to mm. control the king in order to advance those causes. So I, I don't know if that's exactly an answer to your question. I think I, I guess what I mean is I think that you are getting at an, an inherent risk within the political system, but the poor leadership, you know, it, it, the problem that England faces is primarily poor leadership but the poor leadership grows out of a you know a fundamental and insoluble problem of its political system does that make sense no no that that makes sense um and obviously subtext here is uh you know i i tend to think that uh monarchy or certainly absolute monarchy is bad uh at least in the context of the world that we're looking back on it may not have been you know viable compared to or other forms of government may not have been viable and it's not really the the sort of point of the question but it, it just is interesting to me that there's a lot of downside risk associated with this way of ruling yourself and you know ruling the nation and um it's like when you have somebody that's really great the generation prior i feel like you know you're setting yourself up almost for a fall it's like just it's very rare to find like a succession of truly great i think kings in history and part of that might be chance part of that might just be it's like tough act to follow you know and you can't you can't build on the momentum as easily but i think in henry v's case it's like he's almost so dominant and powerful uh, that he's able to suppress all of these underlying kind of political issues that relate to the previous war of succession. And now that's like all, now that he's gone, it's sort of like all spilling out into the open in various like sordid and unpleasant ways that really inhibit um, sort of running the country and like even forming an effective military force uh, against the French. Though the I, I yeah. think that's true, but I think you're getting at a slightly different question. So yes, I think there's always the step down from like you go from, it's unlikely that you're going to get a great king after another great king after another great king. But that's true in any political system, right? Like, the reason they're great is by definition because they're greater than others and you're unlikely to get, mm. you know, that kind of sustained excellence. And even if you do get it, it's not going to last mm. that long. And that's in whatever, you know, whatever political system you're in. I think the, you know, the argument that I would make is that while it's probably true that Henry V was able to, you know, in, in play world at least, was able to suppress those issues uh, while he lived, 
uh, and that maybe some of those issues would come to the fore again after his death. You know, while that's true, I think it's also true that a Henry VI coming to the throne at the age of 22 probably has a better chance of dealing with those issues, if only from being more established and having more knowledge than he does at the age of one. All, now, in this play, this play portrays him as a, like, a little bit older than he actually was when he came to the throne. But I, I think that there, it's a set of interlocking issues, not just a... Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that part of it also is just the familial nature of politics, like the fact that these are all blood relations and that the claim to power doesn't necessarily select for skill per se. Uh, there's the question of legitimacy, and then there's the question of whether you're actually an effective sovereign or an effective prince. And um, at the time of the writing of this play, right, like Machiavelli is even referenced in the in an unflattering light in the play itself. Um, But there is this sort of idea of effective governance involves sort of being a practically oriented person in some respects and sort of coming up with real no kidding ways to kind of advance things, uh, advance your agenda and sort of consolidate power and hopefully use it for good. But then you have Henry VI, who is basically pious and completely ineffective and sort of relying on his sort of divinely ordained place in the court. Uh, And this is why he's constantly telling all of the the nobles who are fighting around him to sort of behave and, you know, sort of generally lamenting the fact that they do not really have the best interests of the realm at heart. He can see that, but he he doesn't have the guile to kind of navigate this world at all. It's kind of an interesting thing. It's like you have to be, you have to actually have some skill and you actually have to have legitimacy of claim. It's not an infrequent occurrence for those things to be, you know, not even touching and sort of the Venn diagram, like you get these outliers, whether by circumstance or temperament or just sort of conditions in the world that prevent people from being both like competent and legitimate at the same time. Yeah, I think that's true. I I also, I think it's worth noting that, you know, it's not like at least intelligent monarchs of, you know, of the Middle Ages were highly aware of this problem. Frankly, and this is a couple generations after the events of the play we're talking about, but a huge reason for the convulsions of the reign of Henry VIII sort of centered around the fact that he was terrified about not having a male heir for exactly these reasons, right? Because he knew that the result of an unclear succession and not having an heir who was acknowledged by all to be the heir and who had not been properly trained was a recipe for disaster. And he knew that just by the example of history, right? Right, Um, right. And I think you see that throughout Europe, not just in that particular case. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually want to um, move on to sort of talking about the conduct of the war and the people waging it and sort of the relationship between war and politics in the court. And, you know, we can do that in two ways, both by talking about the English side and then talking a little bit about the French side. But to lead into this, I think your favorite passage is one of the Talbot monologues. And I think that's a very uh, natural way to kind of go into that. So do you want to read your favorite passage from from the play? So I mine is from Act 1, Scene 6. And it's basically Talbot has gone with the Earl of Salisbury and a guy named Sir Thomas Gargrave to basically survey the defenses of the city of Orléans. And as they're there, the French have sort of set a trap whereby, as far as I can tell, basically have packed some gunpowder into a grate and set it to go off. And it does go off. And 
and it mortally wounds the Earl of Salisbury. So Talbot says, what chance is this that suddenly hath crossed us? Speak, Salisbury, at least if thou canst speak. How farst thou, mirror of all martial men? One of thy eyes and thy cheek's side struck off? A cursed tower, a cursed fatal hand that hath contrived this woeful tragedy. In thirteen battles Salisbury overcame, Henry V he first trained to the wars. Whilst any trump did sound or drum struck up, his sword did ne'er leave striking in the field. Yet lifts thou, Salisbury, though thy speech doth fail, one eye thou hast to look to heaven for grace. The sun with one eye view with all the world. Heaven be thou gracious to none alive, if Salisbury wants mercy at thy hands. Sir Thomas Gargrave, hast thou any life? Speak unto Talbot. Nay, look up to him. Bear hence his body. I will help to bury it. Salisbury, cheer thy spirit with his comfort. Thou shall not die, whiles. He beckons with his hand and smiles on me, as who should say, When I am dead and gone, remember to avenge me on the French. Plantagenet, I will. And like thee, Nero, play on the lute, beholding the town's burn. Wretched shall France be, only in my name. And then there's a sort of a brief moment where he speaks with a messenger, and then he concludes it, the scene by saying, Hear, hear, how dying Salisbury doth groan. It irks his heart, he cannot be revenged. Frenchman, I'll be a Salisbury to you. Pucelle or Pucelle, Dauphin or Dogfish, your hearts I'll stamp out with my horse's heels and make a quagmire of your mingled brains. Convey me Salisbury into his tent, and then we'll try what these dastard Frenchmen dare. So I, I was drawn to that passage and sort of to the character of Talbot more generally because, you know, while Talbot is not, is not even close to the most senior Englishman in the play, he is the one with the sort of the clearest motives, the clearest approach, and the greatest clarity of purpose maybe is really, really what I'm trying to say. And I like this passage because... He is uncompromising. He knows what he is and who he is, and he knows what he wants. And basically what he wants is to kill a bunch of Frenchmen. But I, I thought it was refreshing in a play that features so much ambiguity and so much infighting that there was a character who sort of manifests that, that level of directness that, that really set him apart, I think, from the other English characters. And, you know, both... Is, but is ultimately also what serves him poorly and leads to his death. You know, ultimately he is brought down because of the infighting between uh, Somerset and York, you know, who, who basically value their, their petty squabbles more than the prosecution of the war with France, while, while Talbot basically believes that they should be united against the French threat and that that's the most important thing. And he basically dies because he believes that and other people don't. Yeah, no, I think I think that's like a definitely a fair reading of, of Talbot. So there's two things I kind of wanted to, to ask about this and see what you thought about it. So the first is um, Talbot uh, is sort of of a different type, as you noted, like he has the national interests at heart in the way that some of the nobles back home do, but most do not. Uh, and he's sort of been off fighting the war for a while. And so my sort of first question is, when you think about him and his relationship to Henry and the rest of the nobles, you know, what's the, what, what is the connection between what he is doing on the battlefield to the actual political aims? Because, you know, you could say that there's actually seems to be kind of a disconnection between kind of the, the domestic components of political debate in the court with what he's actually being tasked to do, uh, which is basically just like defeat the French, but meanwhile things are falling apart at home. And I wanted you to sort of compare that to the Joan of Arc situation with the Dauphin. And, you know, to, to what degree, what is driving their success and failure compared to one another? And how do the sort of war fighting people relate to the politicians that they answer? So to? Th 
this actually, to me, relates very strongly back to your first question and the question about leadership. Because to my eye in the play, it, you know, as long as Talbot is sort of left to his own devices in France, not that he's beating the French, but it's, it's very much a back and forth affair. Neither side is gaining the upper hand. And basically that's because both sides are subordinate to one vision of leadership and one person who's driving operations and is able to make decisions. You know, the failure of the English in the play, to me, seems to start coming about when Henry shows up in France and there's this divide, you know, basically Talbot's in charge of one force, Richard is in charge of another force, Somerset is in charge of another force. There's this sort of divided leadership and Henry VI isn't really providing that much clarity or that much inspiration or really even that much instruction short of win the war. And, you know, meanwhile, on the French side, you see a real unity of purpose. And, you know, Charles the Dauphin doesn't just agree to let Joan do what she wants to do. He puts himself under her command and makes everyone else line up behind Joan as his way to win the war. So, you know, what you get is, you know, on the English side, you get this divided rule. And on the other hand, you get, you know, a very top-down approach. I mean, it's very it's very interesting to me, right, as somebody who's um, worked a lot with the, with the military over the years, there's this sort of concept of civil-military divide in the United States and sort of in most democracies, right? So, which is obviously, an, you know, I'm not trying to apply that back then. But it is interesting what you're saying about sort of the unity of purpose purpose and the sort of alignment of political leadership with the sort of military pursuits that are actually being undertaken. Because a lot of the time, Talbot seems to be fighting valiantly, but he's sort of in this expeditionary role where he's kind of cut off from real political direction on how to wage the war. And they really are kind of trying to combat all of these reversals because the French are using treachery and tricks to basically contrive victory in all of these battles, which I think is just a constant thing. And there's a lot of references to like French witchcraft and Joan being a witch. And clearly there's a little bit of like in Shakespeare's day kind of propagandizing going on here and sort of portraying the hated French as the enemy. When you contrast that, obviously you have uh, Charles's relationship with Joan, which is not unproblematic in its own ways because he's sort of enamored with Joan to, to a certain degree where he might not be really judging things correctly at various points, but he is communicating with her and he does have a sense of like what objectives he actually wants and he does trust her to a degree to proceed kind of with his intent and best interests in mind. Um, now, obviously, you could go too far with that and like, you know, if Joan had lived, maybe she's uh, overthrowing not only the gender roles of the day as she was doing as a commander, but also maybe trying to, to build her own power base as sort of a prophet with a direct connection to God. But we don't see that. What we see is Charles basically backing her through some reversals, you know, up and down um, over the course of the war. And generally speaking, benefiting pretty tremendously from communicating and working closely with her and basically hiring her to lead the war for him, um, which is kind of a kind of a remarkable thing. And yet, I don't know that it actually matters all that much in terms of the immediate military kind of resolution of the conflict, right? Because by the end, the uh, English are back on top, at least to the face of the French. 
but they're actually falling apart internally, which might be the bigger issue for them. I don't know if I agree with that reading. I, I mean, I think the like the English win a battle in the sense that they capture Joan and kill her. I, I mean, I, yes, you're, you're right in that, you know, that the, the French basically decide to accept peace with the English in order to sort of build up their power further. But I, I do think that actually they end up in a stronger position than they were at the outset, right? Because because Henry is yes. suing them for peace and sort of following the defeat of Talbot's army. And he's sort of like, we're still on top, so I need to make peace now. You know, it's not it's not quite as clear that, uh, to me that the English are on top so much as that so, they're, they're trying to cut their losses. So I actually agree with you. I think I was sort of thinking of it in terms of like the immediate military sort of results versus sort of translating military victory into political victory. And I think the English are actually failing in doing that uh, for exactly the reason you suggest. is like, yes, they basically get a promise from the French to recognize Henry's legitimacy and to not raise arms against him. But they also ensure that there are no garrisons of English troops in French towns, I believe. I think that's their one kind of major demand. And so there is this kind of like hide and buy strategy to what the French are doing. But it is but it is interesting, right? Because it's like you have all of these vicissitudes in the battles day to day. And it's like some days the French are winning, some days the English are winning. Some of this happens on stage, some of it happens off stage. You know, sometimes you're like just told about it and not it's not really explained very well but ultimately you come down to it and there's like this and i think you can talk about it in terms of talbot and in terms of um, somerset and york's behavior in terms of like they're all pursuing to some degree they're either their own agendas or an agenda that might be connected to a sense of like national honor and chivalry and sort of standing by your men but even talbot is saying like raise the name of talbot when he's going into battle there's a sort of disconnection of um the events on the battlefield to like the ultimate political objective that the that the english have which is basically subduing the French, you know? And I think that speaks to Talbot's, both his strengths and his limitations. You know, I think Talbot seems to embody a sort of martial virtue, but unlike the Henry V that we'll get down the line in the play Henry V, he's not a political creature, right? His value is entirely in, you know, in his martial skill. And that would be fine if it was connected to you know, and I think arguably it was fine up until the death of Bedford, right? And I, I don't remember when Bedford dies in the play, but, you know, Bedford is the region of France. And once he dies, there is no more political leadership of Talbot's military skill. Mm -hmm. And at that point, once once the martial stuff is no longer tempered with some wisdom regarding the political situation, it, it sort of becomes self-defeating. I mean, I think it becomes very hard to translate what they're actually doing in terms of the fighting into what the actual objective that the fighting is trying to secure. Because it's like, you're not really fighting over these towns, right? Yeah. You're fighting over kind of the, the political balance of power and who has to pay tribute to whom, not just in the short term, but the longer term. You mean, ideally, you don't want to have to fight this war again later, which, you know, spoiler alert, there's going to be more problems in the future for all of these people. Uh, it's very interesting to me that Talbot embodies this sort of concept, as you put it, of sort of martial valor. Because I think in, in our own politics and, you know, in certainly in America today, right, where the military is one of the most respected institutions, there is at once kind of this deference from citizens uh, towards the military. 
um, and sort of assuming that military leaders are going to make good political leaders. And then, you know, it's this sort of idea of the man on horseback, you know, sort of riding in to save the day, which is why occasionally you see whether it's Colin Powell or Wesley Clark or, you know, James Mattis, there are all these ideas of sort of finding the general who can transcend sort of petty politics. And Talbot's admirable in a lot of ways, but he also kind of lacks the the guile and sort of the ability to sort of navigate the politics of what he's doing without also sort of usurping the legitimate authority of the sovereign, which is maybe more of a problem today where we talk about civil military kind of divides and like the relationship of the military and sort of the political class. It's it's just very it's very interesting in that light because Talbot has a lot of virtues, but ultimately, you know, he comes to a he comes to a bad end, not necessarily through his own fault, but um but it's it's not entirely he does limitations and the limitations are profound. Yeah. I, I will say I don't think that I, I I'm not sure if you were arguing this but I, w- I would not put a lack of awareness of his role as one of his limitations. I mean, I think he, you know, he is a consummate servant. Yes. I think the challenge would be, and we'll talk about this uh, a little bit later in the program, but I think the challenge would be, what do you do with somebody like this when they achieve military victory and then they come home and ha- participate in politics as he would have, you know, as a member of sort of the nobility and the kind of martial elite that was very closely tied to, to the, the royal family. He might understand it now, but how does that travel if he were to have survived, right? Similarly to Joan, like, how does that travel if she's basically the savior of France and everybody kind of recognizes her as such? You know, it's it's not shown this way in this play, but it certainly is, uh, there's certainly an argument for it in the actual historical record that, you know, to some degree, Charles left Joan out to die, you know, once she, uh, once she outlived her usefulness for exactly these kinds of reasons, right? Yeah, no, that's great. Let me, uh, um, one thing I also wanted to note, Will, going back to your, you know, when you were talking about Somerset and York sort of pursuing their personal interests, as, and as relates to, you know, to the treaty between the French and the English, that whole thing with Suffolk and Margaret of Anjou at the end, this, which ultimately you know, getting to the end of the play, that that's what's going to sink this agreement, right? That this is what's going to lead to the French renewing the war, that is another case of, you know, one of these petty noblemen putting personal interests above the interests of, you know, of the crown and the inability of Henry VI as a leader to, you know, to recognize that. There's a little bit of Rob Stark in him making the the wrong wedding choice, basically, uh, you know, to secure his own reign there. I, except that in, it, you know, in the case of Rob Stark, it came from a, a noble but misguided yes. lack of real politic, whereas with Henry VI, it's the result of being weak manipulated and you know and not you know not being able to clearly see his own interests. yes which which is why i think ultimately tom and baratheon you know the boy king is clearly the parallel to henry the sixth i mean the guy is the guy is getting played like six ways to sunday by everybody around him and he sort of knows it but he also knows not enough to to stop it you know um, yeah. So just to uh, to switch gears here a little bit, if you were to cast this movie, I mean, you've worked in Hollywood, you know, you've sort of seen a little bit of that world. Who do you cast uh, for some of these roles? I mean, we've talked about Henry, Joan, Richard, Talbot. Uh, who jumps out to you? All right. Let me. Th- so the two roles, the two roles that were easiest for me as I was thinking about this were Talbot and Joan. So for Joan, and and to be clear, I mean, I think our, our listeners probably think of Joan in, in a heroic light. She is not portrayed 
in an entirely heroic light in this play. So just keep in mind that like the Joan of Arc that is portrayed in this play is a Joan of Arc that is both stirring and charismatic and, you know, able to win people over to her side, but is also a little bit unhinged. Maybe a little demonic even. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, there's like a, there's a crazy scene uh, towards the end of the play before she gets burned at the stake where basically the demons that she's been consulting for, you know, for the duration of the play, but we have not seen before appear. And it's, and the question, you know, and suddenly we're, we're made to see that in fact, all the accusations of witchcraft against her have been true all along, which I think is one of the sort of crazier aspects of the play. But so I was trying to think of an actress who could capture both her charisma and her edginess in that regard. So for Joan of Arc, I settled on Jennifer Lawrence, who I think, you know, really has embodied that kind of divide in, mm. in a number of her characters. Similarly, for Talbot, I was looking for someone of iron seriousness and seriousness of purpose and who I could imagine as a, you know, in a totally bloodthirsty and ruthless role. So for Talbot, I settled on Michael Fassbender. Mm. You know, for some of these other roles, I'm... I'm and to some degree, I think this is because the other roles are less clearly defined to me. Mm. Uh, the, the, the other one that actually was pretty easy for me to think of was Mortimer, mm. uh, who appears in one scene as Richard Plantagenet's uncle, who basically narrates to him the story of his, of his father's fall and incites in him the desire to win back his patrimony. And my thought on that was, you know, a, a guest appearance you know, a, a with the special participation of Ian McKellen uh, for that role. For the others, you know, for Henry, for uh, for Richard, for Somerset, I'm less sure. Uh, the the my choice for Winchester would probably be uh, Vincent Carthizer, who played Pete. I think it's Pete on Mad Men. Pete yeah, Campbell. That's right. That's right. So <laughs> Vincent Carthizer, as you know, as seen in his portrayal of of Pete, is really good at portraying you know, sort of unscrupulous, unattractive, self-interested, venal men, which I think Winchester is like the most obvious example of that. He literally bribes the Pope, basically, to be made a cardinal, I think is the implication in the in the end of the play. Yeah. Um, or close to it. He, he bribes somebody who works for the Pope, basically, to be made a cardinal. So. Uh, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think? Did you have thoughts on some of these other characters? No, or do I would, you, do you I would definitely... No, I actually agree with all of your castings. I would, uh, I would definitely pay to see this movie. I could also see like an Anthony Hopkins type playing Mortimer. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, actually, this could be... For all the roles that are sort of of the elder generation, like the brothers of Henry IV um, and sort of the elder statesmen... I, you could have like a gangbusters ensemble thing going on there, right? Like, right. So these characters, and like we're talking about Gloucester, Bedford, um, Exeter, Exeter. Uh, like Mortimer. these are all these are all characters who are basically well-meaning, who seem to be very concerned about you know preserving the integrity and memory and accomplishments of their brother Henry V. These are all brothers of Henry, uh, and yet they're all overmatched by events. Um, and I think yes. there's a pretty particular brand of older British earnest actor who would fit these kinds of roles. You know, I'm yes. thinking of if you really want to go on the old side, though, I don't think this would be appropriate. I mean, someone like Patrick Stewart could fit one of those roles. Mm, or like a Derek Jacoby type. Yeah. You know, who uh, could also fit in. And I think there's a whole set of, 
of actors in that sort of vein who would who would make sense. BBC Masterpiece Theater, like get after it. I want to see this. This actually has potential to be quite enjoyable. So, um, you know, take it away from there. Uh, from the Bard Flies guys. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, it's that's great. I mean, I was thinking of parallels in my own right, which was just, uh, you know, the political analogies that I'd make. Mm-hmm. And Henry struck me as sort of a, beyond the fictional Tom and Baratheon comparison, there's a little bit of James Buchanan uh, in him and that you know that the War of the Roses or a massive civil war is about to break out. Everybody can sort of see the basic tensions, uh, but it's not exactly clear when the initial powder keg is going to go off. And, um, you know, Buchanan is sort of a justly uh, criticized president for not really doing all that much to head off the conflict and being rather ineffectual. And it basically takes a Abraham Lincoln to kind of turn the situation around. So um, I, I would and- I would disagree with this analogy a little bit, Will. And the reason I would disagree with it is because I think of James Buchanan as having actively aided the South. Yes. You know, so where, that, I think that is where Henry the Sixth yeah. is overmatched by events and doesn't know how to basically manage his subordinates. Buchanan was, it, you know, it, it would have been like if if he was trying to help the French take back their territory. You know, so he was actively working I, against his own interests. I was actually thinking of it more in the context of kind of the British domestic politics side, like almost leaving the French out of it mm-hmm. to some degree. Because to me, it's more like there's no doubt that, you know, he had a sort of slightly pro-Southern orientation uh, de facto. Uh, but I think it's more like, I mean, I also think Buchanan wanted to keep the Union intact. I mean, he's from Pennsylvania, right? No one, no president wants to preside over kind of the destruction of the Union. Yeah. Um, I, I understand what you're saying. I guess I would just say within the context of the play, it would be as if... Henry VI had sided with one of the less scrupulous and ineffective or ineffectual noblemen that's involved in one of these disputes and is sort of committing the nation to ruin. So maybe that maybe that's a little bit of a better analogy. I was just trying to think of U.S. presidents. Unfortunately, we haven't had too many Henry VI types. Uh, so Buchanan was sort of my, my, my effort there to capture the particular qualities. Uh, what about a Lyndon Johnson type? Well, uh, thing is, I think Lyndon Johnson was a very effective president in some respects. Uh, you know, domestically, and he was politically masterful. He was undone by the Vietnam War, but that's um, a slightly different issue, I think. Or the type of issue he was dealing with is maybe a little bit different mm-hmm. um, than Henry the Sixth. And and Johnson was like a tremendously talented and long lived politician right. in the Senate. The the reason I made the parallel is because of one the very poor prosecution of the war in Vietnam under his watch. And also the inability to, right, isn't he, isn't he basically prevented from running for an additional term because of a revolt to his left by Bobby More Kennedy? Less, and, yeah, by, yes, by McCarthy and uh, later Robert Kennedy. Um, so yeah, no, there, there's an element, there's definitely an element of that. I think about the, the source of the, the folly, I think, comes from a different set of character flaws mm-hmm. but one thing you you are bringing up a very fascinating period of time because i actually think talbot had he um lived and, and you know he even talks about sort of being betrayed by sort of squabbling and certainly the no, some of the nobles kind of recognize this he's not wrong i have to say 
Yes, he's not wrong, but there is definitely a school of thought in the wake of the Vietnam War by a number of generals where the argument was maybe not quite stabbed in the back, but like the war was lost at home by a political class that wasn't committed to victory. And that became sort of a tagline in a lot of the debates over how people tried to understand Vietnam, particularly in the U.S. military, uh, for a long period of time, where it's like, well, if only we had really been let off the leash, we could have gone after them. And you know, the, the scarier and much more consequential and depressing side of that is what happened in Germany after World War One, where you had like Ludendorff and Hindenburg, who had been the German sort of supreme military commanders, peddling the stabbed in the back myth, uh, which is kind of one of the dangers that you could see if things had turned out a little bit differently um, on the field here. So a very interesting play and really prompts you a lot you know, to make a lot of these parallels uh, and just like very rich for a play that's kind of obscure. So I think that leads us into sort of ranking this one. I mean, this one is my favorite of the, the three that we've read. What about you? E- easily. I, I mean, I, so I have to say, I, I really enjoyed reading the play. The it's narratively pretty messy. You know, I think there's there's no doubt that it's a little too confusing, uh, and not very streamlined, too much going on, but nonetheless a good read uh, and quite enjoyable. So I, I definitely rank it tops among the three that we've read so far. Yeah, I, I agree. Obviously, you can tell I'm, I'm more enthusiastic about this one in this, uh, in this podcast. I think I, the only thing I'd add is um, all the people who are scheming, pretty much just tell you what they want to do and why they want to do it in very direct ways. So I don't think it's an extremely psychologically penetrating work in the way some of Shakespeare's later plays, and including uh, Richard III, who's sort of at the end, uh, is the fourth play in the sort of set of four that we're working through right now. Um, but, uh, you know, with all that said, it, it's an always riveting read, uh, and I imagine it would be pretty fun to see performed as well like he always has my curiosity and my attention throughout the play yeah Um, (laughs) for we really we have exactly one female character i think is worthy of including in our rankings here will which is joan where do you put her in uh in relation to sylvia kate bianca and julia joan is is a no kidding very developed very high-powered character who cows all of the men around her um for a period of time uh, so she's got to sit at the top of the power ranking. You know, maybe not the person you want to hang out with, uh, but the person that you might need if your country is falling apart and is half occupied by an invading army. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. I, I actually, you know, Sil- Sylvia still has my heart, but uh, I'd say I'm putting Joan as a solid number two. I will say uh, I do give um, Shakespeare's rendition of Joan a lot of credit for just being shameless at the end. Like as they're about to burn her at the stake where she runs through all of the possible permutations that might so... get her out of it. I, I, so th- this is actually a very interesting question to me. Like I couldn't tell if my reaction to the Joan character was just driven by, you know, by the contemporary view of her in history. You know, it strikes you as such a, or maybe not strikes you, it strikes me as an incredibly weird portrayal with, on the one hand, she is extremely charismatic and she has some great, you know, her, that monologue to the, uh, to the Duke of Burgundy, um, where she convinces him to come over to the French side. Earlier on, there's her sort of exhortation to Charles. Like, she definitely can give a good speech, but, like, sort of counterbalanced with the fact that she is actively an agent of the devil in the play. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and that, like, very, her, her very unscrupulous, like, 
uninspiring performance at her trial or at what amounts to her trial. You know, it was a really <laughs> bizarre. I, so I guess what I'm saying is like, I, I don't know if my reaction to that as being bizarre is more a reflection of the of the actual portrayal as it exists in the play or if it's a, or if it's really just driven by our historical memory of that person in history. Yeah, it is definitely a crazy and very different kind of portrayal. I mean, in some ways, right, obviously, like, Shakespeare has his own kind of political and literary purposes with how he shows her just as we do in our own time. And I suspect, in reality, it's probably a combination. I mean, obviously, I'm not suggesting that Joan of Arc was a servant of the devil. I'm just suggesting that, like, you can't just look at uh, Joan of Arc as a, like, an uncomplicated, in the 20th century or 21st century, sort of, like, proto-feminist character mm-hmm. uh, because she also is claiming she's got like a direct line to god and um there's a lot and in this play obviously a lot of that is sort of portrayed as like un- not just untrue but like diametrically opposed to what she actually is uh which obviously you know there's motives behind that too but it's but it's interesting if you met somebody like joan of arc you would be um in if you were a political leader or just like a citizen watching all of this in today's world, you would be completely freaked out. And you probably would have been back then as well. You know, you might have been inclined to believe, you might not have been inclined to believe, but it definitely would have been disturbing Mm -hmm. and challenging in a way that I think we're not really primed to think of Joan of Arc as being today. Yeah, I think it's it's totally fair. Um, We've got a lot of male characters in this play, Will. I think the only one really worthy of entry to the list is uh, is Talbot, um, unless you disagree. Yeah, I think Talbot is, Talbot stands at the top. I mean, in his, Talbot Jr., his son, who basically goes into battle and also gets a gets killed uh, defending and fighting with his father. They're obviously high up. The only other person I'd include or argue deserves an honorable mention is probably Richard Plantagenet, uh, later Duke of York. Uh, And the reason I say that is you spend more time with him, um, which becomes clear as to why I think later in the, the series with parts two and parts three, but you also see somebody who has been wronged in a way uh, by events uh, and sort of deciding to reclaim his patrimony uh, and sort of going about it by talking to Mortimer and then getting into this kind of absurd dispute with um, Somerset, which eventually leads to the War of the Roses, uh, where they're kind of arguing an obscure legal point, but it's really mm-hmm. ultimately about their kind of plays for power. But Richard, I think, is is a slightly more interesting and powerful character who will go on to have an outsized role in future plays. So stay tuned. And that's our show. Next time, the story continues and gets much more grim with Henry VI, Part 2. Thanks for tuning in to Bard Flies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bard Flies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com. 